Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Old Boy Productions, specialists in the development of shows like this one. This week, we take a look at the main drivers behind the increase in real estate prices in major Canadian urban centres. In Vancouver in particular, we examine the role of rising incomes. As wages go up, interestingly, so does the cost of housing. And just as importantly, supply. We don't have enough housing to keep prices down. Our first guest, Aylid Ab Euroworth of CMHC, says we need to consider both of these factors moving forward if we want to have any chance of solving our affordability crisis. But of course, as housing gets built, there is a feeling that it's all happening beyond our control. Some of that is because most of us don't speak up about neighborhoods that we don't call our home. Our second guest from San Francisco, Sonia Trauss, is a leader in the YIMBY movement, which stands for Yes in My Backyard. She says that as neighborhoods grow, even if you don't live there and you want to see improvement in housing quality, then you need to speak up and say, yes, that housing is needed. She says, otherwise, council only hears from people who don't want the new kids on the block. She says we all have to take a more proactive approach and add our voices to the yes in that neighborhood and that neighborhood and that one over there too. Because if we don't, then she says nobody listens. But if we do, maybe, maybe just then more housing might get built. But joining me now is Aled Ab Euroworth of CMHC. Aled, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. You uh, were commissioned uh, as an economist to take a look at what are the factors that are driving the increase in the value of real estate in major Canadian urban centers. And of course, the two most important ones are Toronto, but for our purposes, Vancouver. What are the factors that are at play? Well, as you say, the study was a very long-term study, and we looked at it over multiple years, and um, maybe we can return to this, but we were basically looking up up to, say, 2016. And the main reasons that we found for escalating house prices from 2010 to 2016 in Vancouver, well, in all Canadian cities, actually, but the reaction was a bit different. But the main factors are rising incomes, rising population, and then prolonged periods of low interest rates. Now, these factors were all driving demand higher, and then you combine that with a very, well, shall we say, unresponsive supply side on housing, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto. 
I found it interesting in reading your report that you mentioned that one of the causes is rising incomes. How does that play out? How how is that such uh, have such an impact on the value of housing in a market like Vancouver? Well, I, I think people want to always live in slightly better housing. So as incomes rise, maybe they want to move from a condo to a single detached. Maybe they want to move from a smaller condo to a larger condo. Maybe they want to move from, I don't know, Coquitlam to, to the center of uh, Vancouver. So all, all of these factors are driving up demand. But it's also true that um, as incomes rise, people want to save a portion of that money. And some of that savings may also feed into the housing market. Hmm. As incomes rise. Right. And you pointed out also that businesses tend to locate them in those areas where those higher income earners uh, live because they want to be able to create that easy access right. to and from work. Yeah. These appear to be interesting factors and kind of contrary to the narrative that we had been hearing so much about it being foreign investment that was driving the surge in, in prices in this marketplace. When you looked at this, what impact did foreign investment have? Well, to be fair, we, we have very limited borderline poor data on uh, foreign investors, and particularly the um, over time. So StatsCan has now been putting a lot of resources into uh, developing data on foreign investors, foreign buyers, non-resident buyers, to use the tactical term. Um, but what they have been concentrating on is, is having that data across Canada. It's mm -hmm. a particular challenge for us in that the, the data do not go back in time, so we can't look at the history. Now, depending on how you slice and dice the data, um, the extent of non-resident ownership of the stock of housing in Vancouver, shall we say, is between 5% and 10%, depending on how you define things. There, mm -hmm. was a, there was a recent report that changed the definition or how, how you consider a property to have some non-resident influence. But that could be Canadian non-resident yeah, exactly, or foreign yeah. non-resident. Yeah, I mean, it could be that there's a couple living in Vancouver and w one of the spouses is working in the U.S. And so they would be non-resident for tax purposes, but still own the property in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So that's why uh, the use of the word non-resident is, is a loaded term. <laughs> well, it's a loose term because it's hard to define exactly yeah. what it means. Yeah. Well, there had been such a focus on um, Asian and particular Chinese investment that there was this belief that that was what was driving uh, the the increase in housing prices. But now they put in the uh, foreign buyer's tax, and it seems to have uh, had a dampening effect on, right. on the market. Yeah, well, a few points on that. Um, the, the only really reliable, I think, data point on the extent of foreign investors was exactly at the time when that tax was introduced. And I think, if memory serves, it was around 13 to 14 percent of the flow of uh, residential purchases were foreign at that time. Mm -hmm. So, and you've alluded to this already, but our, yes, non-resident buyers had an impact on house prices in Vancouver. But it's just kind of hard to say it's the dominant effect or the principal effect. Like, like I said, go, going back to the report, we found that these conventional factors like income, population, interest rates, 
accounted for the vast majority of the increase. We do not have to go beyond that to say what is causing um, house prices to escalate in Vancouver. Right. Well, when I think about that income, we see uh, an uh, a huge surge in the number of jobs that are coming in in the high tech and, right. and increasingly in biotech, and they traditionally pay more money. Yeah. Uh, and so that is going to have an impact yes. on housing, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's the same in Toronto. I mean, it may not be the same industries. Toronto has a much larger financial services. But again, it's the same argument. These are very high-paying jobs. They're usually in the city centers. These firms like to co-locate to benefit and feed off of each other. And so I, I think the same phenomenon is at work in, here in Vancouver. Right, because they help to create a pool yeah. of talent that each of those yeah. companies can draw on. Yeah. So they keep bringing in these people, they keep pushing up uh, yeah. the value of real estate. Um, but you also allude to the fact that supply didn't keep up with demand. Right. Yeah. And yet we see construction everywhere. You know, it has been sort of a running joke that virtually every street you drive down in Vancouver, you're going to run into some building that's going up as condo after condo after condo structure right. is being being created. And still it's not enough? I, um, well, that's what the evidence suggests. Is I mean, the other um, challenge is that when we talk about the supply responsiveness, we mean quick supply responsiveness. So the fact that there wasn't a lot of supply responsiveness from, say, 2010 to 2016, and now it's catching up. But, but the, the issue is, is that house prices have gone up mm -hmm. in the meantime. So what you would normally expect is as house prices go up, there is this reaction from the private sector of building more. But the issue in Vancouver seems to be is that that, that decision to build has been delayed quite a, quite a period. Well, and it's slowed down right at the moment. Uh, the, you know, the fact or the figures have just come in that indicate that, no, that, that whole sector is literally pausing as they're trying to figure out, okay, how's this all going to play itself out? And yet people are still coming to Vancouver. What does that say about being able to create affordable housing? Um, it's a real challenge, and um, I, I think... That, that, I mean, that's a little bit the struggle, is how do you incent or um, encourage the development industry to carry on building continuously? Because with prices where they are at the moment, um, it, it, there are serious affordability issues here in Vancouver. And so but it, it'll take time, but, but the only long-term solution is more supply. So you, you also focused on a couple of different things. One was about the, the focus on condominium development, but, but also on single-family dwelling. Uh, what's the difference in those two markets when you take a look at it? Well, what seems to be happening, and this comes back to your earlier point about uh, higher incomes, it's not exactly clear what happened, but as incomes rose, my general feeling is that people would want to move from a condo to a single detached. Mm -hmm. Now, what has happened in Vancouver and in, in, in Toronto is that there has been no limited construction of single detached housing. And so that's why the single detached housing really, st the prices of those really started to increase. And so those became out of reach. But rather than having an increased supply of single detached, the supply seems to have happened on condos. Mm -hmm. and, and so people have been moving into condos. I mean, there, there are struggles there as well because people want more space, maybe because their families are bigger. And having a two-bedroom condo may not be sufficient for their needs. So that, that's where there are struggles in that area as well. 
in a city like Vancouver, which is landlocked, or the, the whole area which is landlocked, creating an additional supply of single-family housing becomes mm -hmm. a little bit more challenging. Right. So there has to be some pretty innovative thinking that goes right. to work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, digging in a little bit into the, into the data, what we were finding, and I, this, I'll make this a little bit too blunt, but uh, what we seem to be seeing in Vancouver is that you have a lot of older single detached housing being torn down and replaced by larger, newer single detached housing. <laughs> right. And yeah. that's not, not really... Not more single, yeah, yeah. but larger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, with more, uh, you know, more... more um, fancy equipment or whatever luxury items yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not really what we're interested in i mean w w when you have as you say a landlocked area you have to somehow move towards densification maybe more row houses townhouses not necessarily you know going sky high but but there are lots of these innovative housing types that could be developed mm -hmm. that, that would increase density significantly from your perspective are we going to continue to see this pressure of not enough supply, increasing demand, and rising prices. No matter what we do, is there any way that we can get out of that cycle? Um, at the moment, that seems to be the trend. Um, but uh, ultimately, supply, it, it, there has to be a supply response in the way that we were discussing, having more density. Um, but this will take time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, going through the whole planning process, but then the actual construction process, this is a multi-year effort to increase supply. So ultimately, supply will be the solution. But, but in the meantime, it's a very tricky situation. Well, and then when we talk about that supply, it's creating greater density. And not everybody, uh, you know, falls in behind that as being a, a good idea. Uh, there are some people going, no, 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 there are a whole bunch of issues that are related to increased density right. that maybe we don't want to, ha want, want to have or invite in. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's going to be a challenging process moving forward, but one that I think that we have to keep a careful eye on yeah. so that housing doesn't you know, continue to be out of reach of, of yeah. the average person. Uh, I, I, I agree with that, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in and sharing You're this. Well, thank you. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Next guest is Sonia Trous. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks welcome, for having me. Welcome to Vancouver. Thanks. You call San Francisco home. What brings you to Vancouver? The Vancouver Urban Forum this afternoon, right? That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to be presenting. What's what's the subject of your uh, of your talk? Um, subject of my talk is actually about how pro housing renters, homeowner allies uh, can get involved in politics and why it's essential. Why is it essential? Um, because our whole system, you know, the reason that we're underproducing housing is that unlike most political decisions where like a like a sales tax, you know, some politicians put the idea out there and pro and con kind of come and make their case and then the electeds sort of make a decision. When we are deciding about whether to build a new apartment building, we really only ask the people who are by definition going to be against it. We we go to the people that live right nearby who already have housing and we say, what do you think about this? These mm -hmm. are the people who are going to experience the harms that are created. I mean, if there are any, but you know, the perceived harms, the feeling like, oh, there'll be more traffic or my neighborhood will change. But the benefit of that housing accrues to all the future residents and in a small way, really to anybody that's in the market for housing. Um, and our system right now is set up 
it's not set up to really like pull all those people in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're generally pro housing, you can't just sit around and feel like somebody's going to be, uh, bringing your point of view forward like people have to be proactive yeah that's an interesting point because of course you're talking about the not in my backyard group who go i'm already here this is my backyard i don't want it yeah now i know that you were you played a uh, a big role in the starting of the yimbyism yes in my back yes. backyard movement as you're explaining this to me i'm thinking okay well how do you get people who don't live there or even know that they might live there become active and, and get out and, and then speak in behalf of uh, the building of rental housing in that area it seems to be left to those people who are the developer or to uh, representatives how do you get people then to say yep this matters to me i'm going to get out there and put my voice forward yeah well there's <clears throat> there's a saying like there's no better organizer than a bad boss i mean one thing is the problem has gotten really bad so that's helpful you know there's people who probably didn't think they would get involved in local politics kind of looking around like what can i do things like are terrible you, you well weren't yeah really expecting it either were that's, you yeah that's exactly right i was a high school math teacher and it was just so obvious that in in San Francisco, we needed more housing. It's a very popular city. Population is growing. People are having kids. The economy is hot. You know, similar to Vancouver, people are trying to move there, and they just were not building enough housing. It was crazy. So um, one thing is, yeah, people are starting to get outraged. Another thing, actually, that does help is really publicizing some of the concerns. You know, housing is at the base of our pyramid of needs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's core. It's like clean water. Do you want clean water? Yes, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so people are already kind of, mm, they're inclined to, to think it's good. And then when you hear some of the, the things that the opponents say about the housing, and sometimes some of the things that opponents say about renters is really prejudiced you mm -hmm. know like renters they don't take care of the neighborhood they don't really belong here their kids are going to do crimes that's something that i heard at a public hearing once it's like insulting and uh for better or for worse we kind of live in like an era of outrage and we get a lot of people just like that come in because they find out what people are saying on their behalf you know mm -hmm. that the homeowners will go and say the whole community agrees with me you know these apartments are just gonna make our neighborhood a slum and it's well, well, that very thing did happen here around one development. Uh, that people were saying that or it became yeah, a slum? That, that it would it'll turn <laughs> this into a ghetto. Right, exactly. And it's so, yeah, when people find out that that's like the level of discourse, they get mad. And then it's just a matter of making sure they know where to get mad, who to get mad at. <laughs> okay, so as you point out, the people who live in that neighborhood are the ones who can have a voice because they're there and they go, this is my backyard. How do you then get people who are... Uh, responsible uh, and invested potential renters to say, okay, I'm going to step up and I'm going to go speak to that issue because, you know, we're all trying to live our own lives. And what, what tends to happen is that these things get left to an advocacy group. Oh, yeah, definitely. That then, the, the then is viewed through the lens of, well, you're just advocating for that because that's how you make your, pay, your, your paycheck. Well, as it is now, I mean, I don't know. Like we have, so you guys have abundant housing Vancouver, which is all volunteer run. You know, there is no paycheck there, so no one can say that. But even if there is, I don't. I mean, I think you have to be pretty cynical to be like Greenpeace. Uh, you just care about the environment because that's how you make your paycheck. You know, I think that the the housing app and and this was kind of an open question a few years ago, but there are a lot of housing advocacy groups now um, all over the U.S. and in Canada, and I think that. 
the elected officials actually have been receptive because they can see that when you bring people to public comment, that's the really the most visible thing. Um, emails and calls are also excellent. But, you know, if you show up to public comment, uh, your city council person will see that you're just a regular person, you know, and well Okay, so I think I think that that speaks to the power of the individual rather than the group that we hear time after time after time. So, uh, how do we then reach out to people who would be benefactors because there'll be an increase in supply to say, come forward, get involved? Because a lot of people go, well, I'm not very good at it, and right. I'm afraid, and so you know, uh, what's the point? Yeah, I actually like one of the great things. Um, sorry, it's it's definitely true that a lot of people are feel like they're not going to do a good job at public comment. A lot of people think you'd hear a lot of facts and figures. Uh, but one thing that I always tell people is to just go, go and see, you know, go, don't necessarily plan to talk, but when people go to a city council meeting and they see the level of discourse there, you know, someone might go and think like, Oh, I'm not going to be able to make a good speech. But when they see the other speeches, they realize that the bar is low. You know, it's not it's not hard to make a speech. And a lot of times something that's that a that a housing opponent says is like so infuriating, you know, or they'll 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 misstate some facts or say something that's just outright not true or something that's insulting that then the pro housing person is like motivated and they're like, OK, OK, I'm going to take my five minutes or three minutes. Well, I watched one of your videos and I think in it you said, Look, at, even if you don't do a good job yeah. when you go out, it's better than nothing. It is better than nothing. They have to hear from you. And, and so this is what's important. Now, there are some people who go, okay, so you're going to do all of this. What will be, like, I'm worried about what the downside of it will be. But you say there's a tremendous amount of upside. What is that upside into communities and into the city as a whole? Well, the first upside is that people get to live where they want to live. You know, whether that's close to work, um, close to their families, close to some subculture, you know, that they that is going to help them, like, achieve all of their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, the other upside, actually, for cities is property tax revenue. You know, this is something I... I that definitely gets lost in California. It's incredible. Um, but cities need humans to operate. So, uh, and then just the general community, like the, I, I truly believe that density is great. You know, I live, I love living near all kinds of people. Um, it's partially as a, I, I'm Jewish. So as a religious minority, I realize that no matter what kind of minority you are, it could be like a religious or racial minority. It could just be that you are very interested in like, um, you know, Renaissance string instruments, whatever. If there's a lot of people around, then the likelihood that someone similar to you that shares your interests or your lifestyle being nearby is much higher. And so it just like, it, it creates the possibility for diversity um, just like nothing else. And then plus the environmental benefit, like we can't keep sprawling. So, and also there are a number of issues around, uh, access to affordable housing for those people who become disenfranchised as a renter. I go, I I'm thinking, okay, well, I got a job and I want to live there and I'm going to get out and I'm going to speak on behalf of development in that community. But by extension, do we also have a responsibility to those people who are disenfranchised, who don't have a place to live, who are struggling to make it through the week or the day? 
Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. So one thing I think people don't fully appreciate is how zoning makes affordable housing impossible. When we talk about subsidized housing or affordable housing, I think that what's on the top of people's minds is like, well, if we're going to subsidize housing, you know, if somebody is either making minimum wage or can't work or they're old and they're thinking about the subsidy, they're thinking, well, we have to put money aside from the general fund or, you know, something like that. And you do obviously need subsidized subsidy for subsidized housing, but you also need the zone the legal framework in place to make it possible in the first place. Um, in both San Francisco and Vancouver, at least three quarters of the city is zoned for low density housing, like a single family home or a duplex. And by default, what that means is you cannot build subsidized or affordable housing in three quarters of the city. Period. Yes. Period. Because yeah. you just can't build an apartment building, and that's that. And there are times and places where um, local governments will subsidize, like, single-family developments, but uh, not somewhere like Vancouver or San Francisco because it's just such a high-demand place. You know, they can't afford to um, basically waste land in that way. Um, and so I think, you know, it's it's really very unfair because, one, if you qualify for subsidized housing, you're locked out of literally three quarters of the city. Um, and then, two, um, we don't have as much affordable housing as we would have otherwise. And we're forcing the affordable housing developers to overpay for land. Mm -hmm. So what well, you that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So it really it. Yeah, it means it's bad on the taxpayers because we have these areas that are like, okay, in this area, you could build high-density residential, either subsidized or not. You could build hotel. You could build office. So if you have, like, a gas station and you're selling it, then maybe you'll sell it to the affordable developer. But that affordable developer has to compete with somebody who's going to build a hotel. They're going to pay market They're going to pay more. Yeah. Right. So that's why it's very even doubly more important to rezone um, the low-density areas in in San Francisco and California, we're experimenting with rezoning just for affordable housing. And then that way, the affordable housing developer, all they're competing with is some, you know, low density and uh, low revenue use. Mm -hmm. And they can get the land for cheaper, save the taxpayers, you know, or build more housing. Your overriding message, though, is don't be afraid of density. Yeah. When it's coming to your neighborhood, yeah. say yes in my yes. backyard, not no in my backyard. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks Thank you so much. In. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in on Apple Podcasts, thevancouversun.com, and theprovince.com, and of course on the Vancouver Sun's YouTube channel. Please be sure to become a subscriber because you don't want to miss an episode. I also want to acknowledge Arnold Chang, Greta Gibson, and Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time. Mm -hmm.